This is the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast interview with the team from the Creative Dementia Collective. I think that, you know, one of the main reasons why we are so terrified of dementia and why we don't talk about it and why it's, you know, like Erin started out with, right, how stigmatized all this language is and talking about it is, is because at the end of the day, right, it's about disconnection. And that's what scares humans most, is feeling disconnected. And we imagine that if we had dementia and we were in a different version of reality or our version of reality, that we would be disconnected from everything that we care about and love. And so that is why kind of on an existential level, reality, reality orientation is like not the way to go because it's creating disconnection for nothing, right? We are being antagonistic and we're arguing with someone's experience just because we think ours, our reality is right and their reality is wrong, right? You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Kayati, and I am a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you like what you hear, join our group on Facebook and share your own insights and thoughts about the episodes. You can also connect with us on social media and online at Music Therapy Chronicles. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles. I hope you're having an amazing day. Today is part one of a three-part series with the amazing women from the Creative Dementia Collective. This was such an awesome conversation. We literally talked for hours and I loved getting to know these ladies, hear their stories, their insights, and their passions for dementia care. So This is, like I said, a three-part series. There was so much content, I had to break it up into three episodes. Today, we're going to be talking about um, some language, some definitions, some, um, some ways that we talk about and work with people with dementia and some considerations we should all have, as well as some of the personal experiences of Kaylee, JL, and Erin who are the the three ladies on today's podcast. So I hope you're looking forward to this. Thank you so much for clicking on today's episode. If you are loving the show, please let me know by leaving a review. Uh, Those really help the show be more visible and subscribe so you never miss an episode and so you don't miss parts two and three with um, these amazing women. You can follow along with Music Therapy Chronicles throughout the week on our social media platforms. We are at Music Therapy Chronicles. We have a group on Facebook where you can start or join a conversation about any of the episode content. And uh, might I say that some parts of this conversation may stir up some discussion. Uh, And also uh, join our newsletter, jump on the newsletter so that you get some behind the scene content, um, downloads, uh, all that good stuff. I like to, to share on the newsletter what's on my heart and mind. So please check that out as well. 
And if you want to earn CMTEs for listening to the show, check out our pod courses, which are housed over at mtpodcastcollective.com. All right, let's get into part one with Kaylee, JL, and Erin. All right, everybody, welcome to the Music Therapy Chronicles. Thank you for having us. Thank you for uh, Thank for coming you. on the show. For the listeners, we, we have a large crew here. We have three guests on today. Um, so to, to start us off, will you please introduce yourselves uh, with your name so the listeners can put your voice to your name uh, and take it away for what you're going to share with us today. Hi, I'm Kaylee Allen. I'm a board-certified music therapist and one-third of the Creative Dementia Collective, and this is the sound of my voice. <laughs> 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 I love that. Um, I'm JL Weinberg. Um, I'm an art therapist and a mental health counselor. And this is the sound of my voice. <laughs> oh, well, you, y'all have teed me up so nicely. I'm the, the third and final member of the Creative Dementia Collective. My name is Erin Statiker. I am a um, uh, certified independent trainer with um, positive approach to care. And um, we're just super happy to be here this morning. This is the sound of my voice. <laughs> now you all need to harmonize or something. <laughs> yeah, we, we practice that, right? Yeah, we're ready. Um, well, Trisha, if, if we may, you know, I'd, I'd love to dive in and, you know, create a little context for the conversation today. We were talking and we always think it's important to, um, you know, start off with some um, stigma smashing and creating some really um, positive, you know, dementia friendly language for the conversation we're going to have. And you might hear us use some terms that are like, oh, that's a little unusual, but it sounds like they're saying that really intentionally. Uh, and we are. So, um, I think we'll we'll kind of set the tone there, if cool. I may. Yeah, please. All right, perfect. So, um, a little little bit about us. We're uh, you know we're three millennial women. We've all been working in the the field of elder and dementia care for oh gosh, collectively twenty something years, and I don't know for the last decade. And um, so we've we've gotten to work with a lot of folks who are living with dementia, and that is now our passion and purpose here. Um, so you heard me say one already, um, uh, you said, uh, folk or person living with dementia. Um, mm-hmm. that's an important one. You know, you'll often hear out in the world, people saying, uh, a demented person that's out y'all. We don't say that anymore. Um, uh, you know, a demented person or an Alzheimer's patient. Um, you know, the most important thing about being, uh, a dementia advocate or a care partner is, um, the relationship that you have with that person, right? It's all about the relationship, um, keeping it positive, keeping it supportive, especially if you're a family member or a loved one. And relationships start with language um, and in the way that we refer to people. So, you know, calling someone a demented person or an Alzheimer's patient, um, you know, unless they're being treated in a medical facility, um, even then they're a person first and a patient second. 
So we really um, want to honor the, the human side of that person and that they are not their disease and that they are a person with a disease. Mm. Um, uh, let's see, another one. Um, uh, someone suffering from dementia or a dementia sufferer. You hear that a lot. You know, my mother suffered from dementia. That may be so. She may have had moments where she suffered from dementia. But, um, you know, when when actually asking the community of people who still have the skill to be able to, to, to say so, they really did prefer to be referred to as a person living with dementia or somebody who is doing the very best they can while living with dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not our job or our role to label that person as suffering and assign them that suffering. Um, they may have times of experiencing really, really challenging, you know, frustrations emotionally, phys- physically, cognitively, but um, ultimately it's up to them to say if they are suffering. Um, or if they are finding a way to actually really thrive um, and find moments of joy living with their dementia. So um, I invite people to try that one on. Um, you know, it might feel a little bit awkward since we're all so used to um, to saying these these kind of, you know, terms. But, um, and I think one other really important one that you'll hear us say a lot today is care partner. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the alternatives being caregiver or caretaker. And the reason we use the language care partner um, is because we're here to support and help that person, not to give them something that they may not want or they may not need. Um, Our job is really to partner with them and to empower them to use the skills they have left. and when we work in partnership instead of doing something to them, um, that's when there's that that mutual benefit, right? That relationship thrives. Hmm. So um, everything that we do with a person living with dementia should always include permission. Um, you know, you'll become skillful in being able to ask for permission, whether it's verbally or otherwise. You know, as as skills decline over time. Um, but even though somebody's living with dementia doesn't mean they, they surrender their right to permission or consent. Um, and, uh, you know, the tasks that we're doing with somebody to, to care for them are shared. We're there to provide that support and to partner with them and to express, express appreciation for their help. Um, so. I, I hope that kind of distinguishes giving care versus partnering with somebody to provide their own care um, and giving them the autonomy of knowing that they can still provide for themselves as well. So, um, you know, and that relationship's going to change over time as the dementia changes over time. So, um, but that's, that's always a good context to keep in mind. So anything else you all would add? I could go on, but uh, I I love it. I thought you did a great job. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. If anything else pops up, you know, if we say something that comes out and we'll just go, Ooh, wait, let's pause and distinguish what, what that one is. So cool. Love that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for setting the tone. Um, I also love that you mentioned that a lot of these designations have been, um, kind of chosen 
by the group of people we're, we're working with, working alongside. Uh, and because especially the, the person first language, I feel like depending on which group of people has given their preference, it, it can go either way. Some people really like the person first language mm-hmm. and some people, you know, say things like disability is not a dirty word. Um, you know, and it's okay. So I, I love that you you distinguish that. And then with the caveat that this is what people with dementia have chosen. This is, mm-hmm. this is what they have told us is their preference. At, at an international level, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm glad he said that piece about the, the dirty word, right? Yeah. Um, some people, you ever notice how when you talk to some people and like, they say dementia, and then it just like becomes, they like whisper it. We're like, Let's say it loud, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Dementia. So we'll say it, we'll say it a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's a big piece, just giving it um yeah, giving it air. Giving it air. So yeah. Mm. All right. I'm I'm gonna let you guys kind of take this where you where you want yeah. to, wherever you want to start today, because I can tell that you all have a lot of passion and you've taken the time to to pre-prepare and I appreciate that. <laughs> Not necessary, but it's awesome. So you take me on the journey. Sure. Um, so, so I'll I'll jump in. One of the topics that we wanted to discuss today are uh, tough transitions. Mm. Um, transitions can be a challenge for a lot of different populations, and um, people living with dementia are certainly in that category. Um, anytime you're stopping something and changing gears and going to something else, that takes a lot of effort a lot of energy, a lot of executive function. Um, so it's, it's demanding. Um, and we thought of a couple of micro examples and then a, a macro example. And the micro examples that we thought of are kind of at beginning and end of day, mm. right? Book ending the day. If you're starting your day, there's a ton of stuff to do. Um, tasks like dressing, eating, uh, personal hygiene, and I'm just listing those off. Let's like start with dressing. If you uh, are caring for somebody and uh, set out their clothes and say, okay, get dressed, <laughs> they, they might be able to do so successfully, uh, but they might also have a hard time sequencing the order of events. So you might've heard of people dressing themselves and wearing their bra or underwear on the outside. They did all the steps, but they didn't sequence them in the right order. So that's a time of the day where um, a lot of hand holding uh, can go a long way. And we found, uh, particularly in my area of music therapy, um, adding music to the routine can be super duper helpful. The musical cues, um, the lyrics in the music, the tempo, the nonverbal communication that happens in music can all help to prompt a routine, especially if you're using it in that way as a routine mm-hmm. of, okay, this is how we start the day. We turn on, um, oh, what a beautiful morning. Open the curtains and pull off the covers. And, or, you know, maybe you have a loved one who doesn't feel like it's, a, oh, what a beautiful morning. And you sing, oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. That's <laughs> fine too. Meet them exactly where they're at, yes. you know? And those uh, musical cues, especially if you're using them over and over, over time will make uh, that mental connection for them. The music itself becomes associated with the task that you're doing every time you're hearing that song or singing that song together. So if you're picking those songs for those tasks, and again, 
those can be different songs depending on the person you want to use that client preferred music right that music that really gets them moving that gets them excited um and and that can help to make your morning routine a lot smoother um and then on the other side of the day you might hear a lot about sundowning um for folks who might be unfamiliar with um with dementia sundowning describes uh basically at the end of the day some folks experience increased agitation, confusion, and anxiety. And what you hear a lot is, um, oh, gee, this is a really nice place, but I, I ought to be going home. My mother's going to be expecting me. She'll, I'll get in trouble if I'm not home. And so redirecting that anxious energy um, is really, really key that time of day, particularly kind of getting ahead of it. If you mm -hmm. can start to anticipate um the, the the small subtle warning signs of somebody's anxiety is starting to rise um it's really helpful to use music in that time because music is this whole brain activity music is an activity where it's really hard to fo focus on something else if you're really attending to the music that you're making um so i use the iso principle and we'll start with like really high energy to match that anxious energy, to match kind of the energetic feel, and then taper it down real slowly to kind of more mellow. So you're you're taking their their mind off of whatever worries. You're redirecting them toward a really involved activity, um, allowing them to have an outlet for that energy. So it's not just being held in their bodies. It's got to come out somehow, whether dancing or singing or pounding on a drum. And then you just kind of taper it down slowly until you're at a, a more mellow place. And it it's one of those things that um, I heard about in one of my music therapy classes and just did not really get it until I saw it work. Mm. And was like, oh my gosh, it's like magic. And of course it's not. It's it's science. It's, it's magic. It looks like magic. It's right? magic. It's, it's magic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, science can look a whole lot like magic. It can. <laughs> pretty magical. Kaylee, really actually, we, we, you know, we all come from a background working in long-term care, right? So we, we, that's actually how the three of us met each other. We, we were all working um, for uh, uh, an assisted living and memory care company. And, um, uh, you know, working in a memory care setting, you know, very hands-on, worked with hundreds and hundreds of people um, and their family members and, you know, fellow staff and, and people living with dementia. So that's how we came together, you know, the Reader's Digest version. But Kaylee at one point trained me in using the ISO principle, you know, and I'm, I'm not a music therapist. Um, and, you know, she made it accessible to me, to a non-musical person. Mm -hmm. um, and I kid you not, y'all. It is so magical. I have I have success stories coming out of my pores with using that, especially in the evening. And you know, um, and it's one of those things that you know it's kind of hard to explain to people. I'd be like, just, 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 just watch, just, just watch. And they'd be like, half an hour later, they'd be staring at me like, she didn't punch you, she didn't yell, she didn't run away, she didn't need to ha ha ha, she didn't ruin the everyone else's evening who's in the it was like it was beautiful mm. so um yeah hats off to to that small practice she's like taking a bow right <laughs> yeah. now as you should as you should 
Um, I think we can all, you know, like connect to the ISO principle in one way or another, you know, like that feeling of when you're really sad and then you put on the saddest music you have just because Mm -hmm. you need to like feel your feelings harder. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you slowly kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, work your way through the playlist (laughs) Um, up into something more kind of uplifting. Um, Or if you're really, really angry, right? And you put on some simple plan and you just have to dance around your house screaming Mm -hmm. and, you know, like really feeling the feels. Um, That's how it feels, right? When When you're a person living with dementia and someone, you know, imagine if you were really, really angry and really, really frustrated and someone came at you with some like, you know, spa music and they're like, just relax. (laughs) I will cut you. I will (laughs) cut you. (laughs) And I no longer have the executive brain function to tell me not to. So I will actually probably try to hurt you. And that's your fault because you're an asshole who put on spa music when I'm really (laughs) pissed off. So you had that coming. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's true validation, you know, yeah. like, hey, I see you. I see how you're feeling. I see what your nervous system is doing. And I'm going to meet you there. Yes, you you took my thought. Um, I want to pull out a phrase that you said, Kaylee, you said redirect the anxious energy. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're in a, a care setting with people with dementia, can we can hear that thing. Uh, I need to go home. My mom's going to be mad, that kind of a thing. And, you know, of course, we're like, this is an unrational thought. And so we're like, no, 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 you're fine. Let's go to dinner. And um, just like what you said, JL, like they they need a place to put this. And, you know, again, ISO principle needs to match them. They need a place to put it. Maybe we'll take a whole half hour, Erin, to take it down. And, you know, that's exactly it. Redirecting that anxious energy, not just redirecting the person. Um, but taking that energy and letting them have a place to put it and to use it. Yeah. Right. Because even if they forget why they were anxious and you Mm -hmm. successfully redirect them to another activity, if you didn't give them an outlet Mm -hmm. for that energy, they're going to have it in them. They're going to be holding it and not sure where it comes from. I get this. Uh, A great example is um, I'll play a song And then a couple songs later, I'll have a resident ask for the same song because the song is now stuck in their head and they don't know that they just sang it. And that's why it's stuck in their head. They just know, oh, that song's playing in my head. I want to hear it. Right. So the same thing with our with our mood and our energy, even if you turn them to a new mood and you're successful or you you get them distracted in a new activity, if you don't give them a place to put the energy that comes with that mood, be it frustration or anxiety or what what have you, they're still going to be holding that energy later. And if it's not given an outlet, they're just like, ah, oh, why do I feel? Mm. What is this? And they can't verbalize it, of course, mm-hmm. or often can't verbalize it. So then they're just stuck with this energy. It's it's very key. You're not just distracting them. It's an outlet and it's intentional. Mm. Well said. I think I think there's this is one of those opportunities that has come up. I'm like, ooh, there's an opportunity to define something here. Um, so, so we're 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 using the term dementia broadly, right? Um, yeah. And it's re- it's really a really broad term. Um, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that, right? And not every person who is living with dementia has the same type, has the same symptoms, does it show up the same way? Mm. Um, so 
you know, for, for listeners, if you, I'm sure you, you may or may not know, but dementia itself is not actually a diagnosis. Um, it's an umbrella term for, um, for a, a syndrome or a ser- you know, a set of symptoms. Um, and there's lots of different types, you know, forms of dementia. There's like 85 to 90, actually. Um, probably the most popular one and the one that everyone always jumps to, obviously, is like Alzheimer's, right? But there's, you know, there's Lewy body dementia, there's vascular dementia, there's frontotemporal dementia, and they all affect people and the brain differently, and they all are expressed differently. Mm. And it's super, super important for us as care partners to actually know what type of dementia this person has so that we can understand how it's affecting them. You know, there's four things that are true about all de- all dementias. Number one, at least two parts of your brain are dying. Mm. Number two, it's going to keep changing. It's progressive, right? And it's going to get worse. That's, that's, a, that's a truth. Um, it's not curable. It's not fixable. Um, you know, there are other things that mimic dementia that certainly are curable and fixable. Um, and it's terminal. So, um, as a care partner, it is really important to have some, you know, to understand what type of dementia or kind of mixed picture, multiple types of dementia are at play so that you can understand what's going on with that person why is that behavior showing up the way it is? Mm. When we understand, you know, what brain change is happening, we can have compassion for it. And then we can change one of the things that we do actually have control over, right? Which is our approach to them. Um, you know, we were talking, using the sundowning example. Um, there's, there's people who, you know, it's like, this woman's 95 years old. And she's like, my mother's expecting me home. And you're like, are you freaking kidding? Like, no, you're, obviously no. But it, you know, it's, uh, it's our job to understand that for her and her reality mm-hmm. and her, you know, time and space orientation, like that is very real for her. Mm-hmm. And the practice of, you know, quote unquote, uh, reality orientation, like totally out. We don't do that anymore, folks. That is super old school. Um, you know, being like, well, Marjorie, you're, you know, your mother's actually been dead for 60 years. Like, no, we don't, we don't do that. Way to redirect um, anxious energy to more anxious energy. Exactly. <laughs> and again, another way to, to, you know, really get yourself in a sticky situation and, um, you know, compromise the relationship, you know, between you and that person. It's going to make any other thing that you really do need to accomplish for the rest of the day, you know, and the, the feeling that you have between you a lot harder um, cause you're going to be that, you know, that lying jerk who comes in and, you know, tells me that I'm delusional and crazy and you, you make me feel stupid and I hate you and I'm going to hit you. And then you totally had that coming. So I actually, I, I would love to piggyback on that because, um, my husband and I are becoming, um, guardians for my dad who has dementia later this summer. And so we've been having a lot of conversations about do's and don'ts of, mm. of being a care partner. Um, and and one of the conversations was about this reality orientation business, right? Like don't mm. disagree with their version of reality. Um, and I explained it to my husband one day, uh, probably in a hurry and probably not very eloquently. And he came back to the conversation and he's like, so I know you're not supposed to say no to a person with dementia, but what mm. if blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, no, that's well, not no, yeah. that's not it, actually. And then I had to really parse out 
the specifics of that conversation and say, we don't disagree with their reality. We don't tell mm -hmm. them they're wrong about their reality. If they say that they're 30 and they have babies at home, you don't say, no, you're 70. And, and by the way, I'm your baby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not disagreeing with that. And then we talked about why. And I think that was really key for him. Um, and he'll describe himself this way. So I don't think he'll be mad at me for saying this on the podcast, but he'll describe himself as a layman, as like a clueless when it comes to dementia. And I think for him, understanding the why of that was really important. So hmm. pretty much uh, the why of that is what Aaron just alluded to. If I am absolutely sure in my reality that I'm in a certain time or place, and in actual reality, it's not that time or place, but you as my care partner tell me I'm wrong, I'm not going to just suddenly orient to the reality and be like, oh, thank you so much for telling me. <laughs> now I'm paranoid and you're a liar mm -hmm. and I don't trust you. Why are you lying to me? What do you want from me? And and now like we've broken a part of trust in that relationship. Yeah. So that was really key. And there's certain things that you really need to make sure that um that you are um getting them to cooperate with like basic care, hygiene, medications, but if they want to believe it's 1950, cool. Like what song is your favorite song playing on the radio? Who are the friends you're hanging out with? Like, take me there. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I think this is JL. I think that, you know, to explain to people kind of from an existential perspective, why this is such an important part of dementia care. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, when I, I would give lectures about, you know, explaining dementia to people who had loved ones who are living with dementia or newly diagnosed. And I would explain, imagine right now, you know, we'd be sitting in some conference room, like imagine right now, if I said we are on a beach in Hawaii, and you would be like, No, we're not, we're in a beige <laughs> conference room somewhere. And I said, No, no, we're in Hawaii. Can't you see the waves in front of you? Can't you feel the sun on you? Can't you feel the sand under your feet? And you're like, no, no, no. And then I get more forceful about we are in Hawaii. And you're like, we're not though. We're in a conference room. Why are you lying, right? Um, and then imagine that shift happens where you can start to feel sand beneath your feet, right? Or sun on your face. And you actually realize, oh shit. I am on a beach in Hawaii. I thought I was in this conference room for the last who knows how long. What's happening, right? And like mm. how kind of jarring that experience can be. And I think that, you know, one of the main reasons why we are so terrified of dementia and why we don't talk about it and why it's, you know, like Aaron started out with, right? How stigmatized all this language is and talking about it is, is because at the end of the day, right? It's about disconnection. And that's what scares humans most is feeling disconnected. And we imagine that if we had dementia, and we were in a different version of reality, or our version of reality, that we would be disconnected from everything that we care about and love. And so that is why kind of on an existential level, reality, re reality orientation is like, not the way to go, because it's creating disconnection for nothing. Right. We are 
being antagonistic and we're arguing with someone's experience just because we think ours, our reality is right and their reality is wrong, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that it can feel very scary as a care partner to acknowledge, you know, we're kind of jumping into the deep end of the existential pool here, but like, what is reality, mm -hmm. right? When we're face to face with the truth that <laughs> there is not just one, um, we can kind of, you know, oh no, if I, you know, if you grab onto me and we both acknowledge like, what is reality? We're both gonna drown in this deep end of the existential pool here, um, you know? And so we try to ground ourselves to our own truth of reality. And that's not what is called for. That's not what's needed when we're partnering with someone living with dementia or someone that's experiencing a different reality. We, we meet them there because that's what they need. They need connection. And that's what we're so afraid of that sometimes we're, we're too scared to look at it, you know? Well, I know I, I, you hear a lot of people who are like, oh, but I don't want to lie to them, yeah. you know? And I, I don't want to be like deceiving of them. And I'm like, to, but like you, you, you want to, so you want to, you know, talk them out of their re reality to what end? Who does that serve? Yeah. Mm, who does that serve? Like ultimately, who does that serve? Does that sit better with you and your moral conscience because you don't like to be a person who lies, but you're going to send this person into a spiral of anxiety or fear or, oh my God, I can't believe I couldn't remember. Like you're, mm -hmm. or are you going to do them the kindness of, you know, you, you, people call it all sorts of things, right? Like therapeutic fabrication or validation therapy or anything like that. But like you really have to kind of check our agenda at the door sometimes when people aren't willing to make those kind of shifts in the way they approach their care. Like, oh, I'm not going to lie to somebody. I was like, well, <laughs> we're, we're going we're gonna to have to do some work there. So, um, yeah. yeah. And I, I would love to, JL, you were starting to touch on something that I think leads into one of the other things that we wanted to talk about today, which is legacy work. You yeah. know, we were talking about that existential human fear of mm. being disconnected. Mm. And, um, and I think coupled with that is our fear of being forgotten um, mm. and how hugely validating and comforting it is for people who are losing pieces of their memory and therefore pieces of their identity and of mm. their self to uh, be able to be a vessel to hold that or to create a vessel to hold that, be it art or music, which is uh, the tools that we are using most often. And I'll give an example of a, a resident who I was working with recently um, who passed away this year. And he was a member of the Seattle Men's Chorus for 35 years. So this was a piece of his life that was incredibly important to him. And when we first met, um, he had some aphasia, but he was able to uh, express himself in a way that other people understood. And of course, as that progressed, um, that was more and more challenging for him. But early in our relationship, he talked to me about his experiences with the Seattle Men's Chorus and um, being accepted as a gay man and having community and family in that chorus. And um, just one example, one story he told me was they had an opportunity to perform at Carnegie Hall. And when they performed Somewhere Over the Rainbow together, it was a transcendent experience for him. It was an experience that encompassed a lot of what he finds meaningful in his life, mm -hmm. um, his purpose, um, his community. And so that was just a very moving experience for him. And at end of life, when he was in hospice, 
unable to communicate at all. Um, I sang him that song and he was opening his eyes and making faces at me and looking at me. And I told him his story. Mm-hmm. I told him the story he told me about Somewhere Over the Rainbow, I got about Carnegie Hall, about Seattle Men's Chorus. And I told him, whenever I sing that song, whenever I hear that song, I think of you. I think of that story. I remember you. And um, of course, this is all nonverbal, but the look of relief, mm-hmm. the look of peace that came over him um, was incredibly rewarding. Um, and just existentially meaningful for somebody who's letting go, leaving this earth. He had no children. He had no spouse. He never married. That was his family. Um, And just knowing my story is remembered, people will share my story. People Mm. will, I'm, I'm, I'm as a, a human vessel departing, but me as a memory, me as getting more existential me as an idea I can stay Mm. I'll still be here something is gonna hold my memory um and and that is part of why legacy work is so important and I would actually love to hear JL talk about this more because honestly like I I did a little bit of legacy work before we started to partner but her passion for legacy work really um ignited a passion in me and changed the way that I do things. So JL, Aww. do you want to jump in there? Yeah, I would love to. I That makes my heart feel really warm to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, so I'm super connected to legacy work through the lens of storytelling. Um, I come from a long line of storytellers and my, you know, I think it's, probably like the Jew in me. Um, <laughs> there is, yes. you know, that's like kind of our vibe. Um, <laughs> storytelling and sharing information through like oratory, right? But that's, you know, that is a part of many, many cultures, most cultures throughout the world. Um, that's just my kind of particular lens of it, of how I, you know, why stories are so important to me that I, I know about my great grandparents' lives. I know about my grandparents, you know, courtship and how they met and that, you know, the night they met at the drive-in theater in Los Angeles, my grandpa snuck in to the drive-through in the trunk of a car so they didn't have to pay for an extra head. Like those are, (laughs) you know, that seems like such a silly little story, but it is so it brings me to this place of like, imagine 1950s Los Angeles drive in my like, you know, skirting the law grandpa who then went on to become a lawyer, you know, like there's this beautiful um, sense memory I can have just because I've heard that story so many times. And I, I think that Kaylee really hit the nail on the head of you know, how knowing that your story has been heard and not just heard, but, internalized and becomes part of someone else's story that they can then perpetuate that is that touches on the most deeply human parts of us i mean humans Mm -hmm. love 
to feel like we existed and we mattered. We just can't get enough of it. And that's why thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, early societies were drawn on cave walls. You know, we were using coal and charcoal and, and pigments um, to, you know, draw a little landscape of our hunt with the buffalo that year. You know, we, we want people to know, ooh, this was a rough one. You know, those buffaloes were wild out. It was hard to get one. You know, we, we wanted, we want people to be able to see like, oh yeah, I remember the, uh, you know, the summer of five when we were, <laughs> when we were chasing those buffaloes. That was a rough summer, you know, um, and, and we connect, right? We have this through line. Um, and that's why, you know, you go on a hike and you see people have carved their initials into a tree because like, hey, we went on this hike with this person and we were so in love and we were so in love that we need everyone to know in this moment, right? Um, the poor trees, they just have to be these like, <laughs> these like pillars of people's, you know, summer romances. But, um, you know, it's so deeply human mm. to want to say or or have an action that displays, you know, I was here, I existed, I was a person with a life and I mattered. And when we get dementia and, or when one gets dementia and starts to lose their personal through line, their thread of how all of their moments of I was here, I mattered, connect to one another, it can start to feel like a loss of identity, right? If someone were to ask you, hey, you know, Trisha, who are you? Tell me about you. What's, you know, tell me what your deal is. You would probably tell them your experiences, right? What, where you came from, maybe where you went to school or how you met this person that was important or, you know, this time that you had a, an experience that changed your life, that brought you to music therapy, right? You tell who you are through your experience. And when someone says, who are you? And you can't go pick out the, this handful of experiences that make sense together that equal you as a human being. One, it can be incredibly ungrounding of this moment of like, who am I? I, I don't know, right? Um, but then also, it, it, it starts to make other people feel like they can't connect to you. Um, if they're afraid of that own thing happening within themselves, it can be very difficult to search for that through line and to lean in like Kaylee did, right? Of like why this song meant so much to this person in this moment. And you saw all the connections and then you were able to like concretize that for them. Um, that's kind of what legacy work is when you're doing that as a, you know, as a clinician or someone that's supporting, you know, another person in end of life um, doing legacy work is your job is to lean in and find the through lines. Your job is to listen and to gather data and then figure out how it fits together in a way that makes sense for who that person is um, and to be a platform for them to tell their story. And sometimes people do legacy work, you know, if they get a cancer diagnosis and they want to firsthand first person tell their story um, completely from their perspective. Other people engage in legacy work later, you know, along the course of a terminal illness or, you know, at the end stages of dementia. And some of the legacy work I've done um, was with completely, you know, nonverbal people living with dementia who were, you know, on hospice, you know, a week or two away from dying. And the most they could do was to, you know, I'm an art therapist. And so I would give them um, 
uh, a lot of times, especially if there people are laying in bed or in a in a wheelchair, a tilted space wheelchair, or something like that, I will kind of hold up in front of them at an angle a piece of paper and load up the the paintbrush with colors and. Uh, they can just hold the paintbrush still and I will move the paper around on the brush to help them create. And sometimes the most someone can do is like point to a color um, in the palette of watercolors. And I had a wonderful experience once where a gentleman just pointed to blue and that was all he was able to um, show up and communicate. And I said, blue, amazing, let's do it loaded up that blue paintbrush and moved this, you know, uh, watercolor paper around with him. And then um, another care partner walked through and said, hey, so you're making a blue painting. Is that from your time in the Navy? And this gentleman just got the biggest smile on his face and nodded. And he was like, yeah, that's what I thought. And it was just this moment of this one piece that this other care partner knew that I didn't know and that I got you know found the blue connection and this person was like hey your time in the navy and that was part of this man's identity and he was so proud of his time in the service and his time abroad and that i was able to connect to that whole line of his life just from this color blue that he chose that day and someone witnessing and knowing his story and so that is you know that's kind of a, a great example of legacy work and why i'm so I just love it. I love stories. I love hearing who people are and helping people communicate, you know, what their what their soul wants to say and what they want to be known for. Yeah. How awesome that that other person was able to come in at that moment and make that connection for all three of you. That's awesome. Uh, And a great example of why it's important for everyone to kind of be on the same page about the importance of this. and also why co-treatment is so yes. such a big, yeah, plays such a big part in, in um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, so we're not treating dementia, but co-treatment, right, that's the right word, uh, co-treatment is important because it allows us to do, expand on things in that way and to, to, get, uh, to get deeper into all of it. Yeah, yeah that's so true. And um, that's one of the things I love about this partnership between JL, Aaron, and I is um, inevitably just being different humans who are caring for the same individual or the same group of individuals. We're going to come with a different perspective, but then mm-hmm. you add the layer of our different modalities and they're really complementary. They're, they're all very person-centered. They're all very validation-centered. Um, they're all very expressive, which is very fun and um and I, I find a lot of that Venn diagram has mm. a very healthy overlap there. Um, and I and I also love it because, like, let's say we're we're working with somebody. Um, I'll actually just give you a real life example. We are are going to be starting work with a client who um, loves to sing and did like weekly jams with her community and has this awesome songbook that is my favorite resource and a gold mine as a music therapist. I'm sorry, you have an exact songbook of all the songs you love in the key you sing them in? On a silver platter. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) perfect. I'm like, what? Amazing. This does not always Um, happen. (laughs) They're also a dancer and a gardener. 
Um, they were a professional dancer for years. Both of those things are things that Aaron uh, is. I have a total dance background and I work in horticultural therapy and memory care. So it's like, ding, ding, ding. Hi. Yeah. Anyway. And then also she's an artist. She's a visual artist wow. and she loves painting. And we're like, hello, perfect client for yeah. exactly who we are and the skills that we have. Um, so that's really cool is, you know, if, if it was just me working with this individual, mm. I would lean hard into that jam. I'd lead hard into that songbook. We'd do a little bit of dancing. I'm not a dancer, but I know how to move my body to music, right? But I wouldn't be able to speak to the parts of her identity that are really central for her, mm. like gardening and art in the way that Aaron and JL are able to do. So us coming together, we're able to... Uh, treat her as a fuller, more complex person mm. and meet her in all of those areas that really spark her joy and her passion and and give us all these different options and all these myriad ways to communicate with her and to connect with her. Yeah. Yes, to everything that you just said. And the other piece that makes them, I will say them, a, a an ideal um, client, but community to work with is that, um, the person who came to us is, is her spouse and reaching out from a place of like, I need help. I need support. I want to support not only my wife who I love, but also myself. Mm -hmm. And I want to get my family and my community on board. And we're like, Oh my gosh, first of all, like, let's just start by acknowledging the P out of you. Cause that is so amazing that you're starting from there. Right. And I think that's the other piece that, um, you know, we, we bring to the table with our, um, with our approach is that it's not just about, um, you know, working with the person themselves who's, who's living with dementia, but it's very much working with their, um, their families, their communities, you know, getting that um, support system in place, getting people on the same page, um, having it be, you know, a collective journey, you know, having there be lots of um, uh, self-care structures in place to be able to, to collectively grieve along the course of this journey. Um, you know, I'll, I'll probably let, let JL speak more to that, but um, I think that was another really important marker that that really drew us to this particular client makes us really really excited to work with them so thank you for yes anding me just now hey the improv in me is very happy hey. <laughs> yeah some if might argue are... that that's a skill in in a memory care setting yes <laughs> they're like and? the, the oh, yes yeah. and memory uh, the um the improv yes and yes it's the <laughs> 1950s and your favorite song is to go back to what you said before exactly go ahead jail Honestly, if you have an improv background or you're interested at all in, you know, improv comedy, uh, Dementia Care is the place for you. Um, <laughs> there is, you know, there have been times where, you know, and, and this is right, like the pushing back against reality orientation and meeting someone in their own reality, right? There have been times where I was in the hallway um, of the community where I was working and someone was crouching behind a table because the enemy was advancing and they were, you know, on the front line and they were in the trenches. And instead of being like, you're not, let's go eat some snacks. Like, you know, like how just, 
disturbing and distressing would it be to imagine you're in a trench and someone's like, let's go have a snack. Um, you know, and so like, yes, and I crouched down, I was on my walkie talkie getting, you know, um, uh, orders from the captain. And we were, you know, told to stand down and that we could go on leave, you know, and then we both went on leave and we did have a snack. Um, but it is this ability to like, you show up and you act and you um, meet them where they are and you yes and your way through dementia sometimes. Um, but yeah. What a yeah, great was, example uh, of de-escalation. Sorry, keep going. Uh -huh. But I was like, where is this going to go? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> One thing I was going to say, Erin, um, when you were talking is, you know, you were mentioning about people um, reaching out and asking for help, mm. right? And I think that's a part of our work that you do so well and that you offer so much support to is this myth with being a care partner that if i love someone enough i can do it all right mm -hmm. if i love i love my person so much that i'm willing to give up anything to care for them or i'm willing to put in all the effort and just do the most right and that is not that's a false equivalency it, how much you love someone has no connection to how much labor you can do on their behalf or for them or with them. And it is truly a community effort, a communal effort to care for someone, right? And um, I think that is, especially in our culture of like hyper individualism and perfectionism and um, productivity of- And privacy, I, and privacy. Yeah, oh, especially, yeah, you have to be vulnerable to be like, one, I, I'm living with a person or I'm caring um, for a person who has a disability, right? You have to say the disability word, woof. Most people don't want to do that. And then on top of it, you have to say, I'm a vulnerable human and I need help and I can't do it all myself. Double woof. Like mm. people are so resistant to that. And that's what we try to do. And I think, you know, part of Aaron's, you know, dementia education that we offer um, is restructuring that narrative for people and you can love someone to the moon and back and mm -hmm. still rely on your support system and still take care of yourself and still reach out for help and still be able to say oh my gosh i'm overwhelmed i just can't today mm -hmm. and that doesn't make you any less of a care partner I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Um, in a way, these episodes feel a little bit out of order because uh, the next part, part two, is when we're going to define what the Creative Dementia Collective is, but we just dove into this conversation and it was so fluid. Um, this is obviously where I split it. Sorry to leave you on this cliffhanger, but next week we're going to define more of what the Creative Dementia Collective is as well as... Um, some topics and session content that these ladies are really passionate about that may surprise you. So we're going to be talking a little bit more about censorship and uh, sex <laughs> within the dementia community and how we can support those parts of um, the people in our lives with dementia. So Stay tuned for that. It's definitely a good conversation. So holistic. And I appreciate that so much. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. Again, please follow us online and on social media at Music Therapy Chronicles. Consider becoming a patron over on patreon.com. Patrons have the exclusive opportunity to ask guest questions. And if you or someone you know is interested in being on the show, please let me know by sending an email to hello at musictherapychronicles.com. Our quote this week comes from Freud. Unexpressed emotions will never die. They are buried alive and will come forth later in uglier ways. (laughs) 